0: It's Stealing Home. I'm David Temple. Based here in Minneapolis, I have the pleasure of being very near a Major League Baseball team. It might not always be a pleasure to watch the actual play on the field, but nevertheless. I get a chance to see some of the very best players in the world compete pretty much whenever I want. But there is a flip side. The games are a bit pricey, the cost of beer is criminal, and... Unless you're blessed with great seats, it can seem like you're miles away from the action. It's no knock on the Twins, it's just the way Major League Baseball is. It's all a little stale, all a little corporate. If you live in the Twin Cities area and you wanna catch some real baseball, baseball presented the way it used to be, you make your way to a St. Paul Saints game. The play is much worse. But they make up for it, with reasonable prices all around and an atmosphere that's half-circus, half-drug-addled dream. Baseball is always fun. But when you're 20 feet away from the foul line, and the fans are all cheering their heads off because if the opposing batter strikes out, everybody gets free tacos, well, that's something special. And it's part of what makes minor league baseball so great. From the Pee Wee Reese Memorial Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the HardballTimes.com, this is Stealing Home. I'm David Temple. It's all about those other leagues today. From the minors, to independent ball, to college wood bat, we're covering it all. First, I'll talk to Ben Hill. He's been reporting on the minor leagues for a decade, and has seen every crazy promotion and stunt you can think of. Then, I'll preview a new documentary about an independent team fighting for both a pennant and a grander statement about community and baseball. Then I chat with Henry Cole. He's an Alaska native, and we'll talk about the very unique baseball league based in the land of the Midnight Sun, plus the MVP of my heart. It's all coming up on Stealing Home. Let's play ball. Minor League Baseball features a lot of things. Reasonable prices, family-friendly atmosphere, and usually some locally sourced food. But the thing everyone associates with the Miners now is all the crazy gimmicks and promotions that they use to draw in fans. Bobbleheads, theme games, strange jerseys, you name it. And if you want to know about any and all general nonsense and tomfoolery going on in the Miners, as well as some very nice features and traveling stories to go along with them, then Ben Hill is your man. Ben has been covering all things minor leagues for almost a decade now on MLB and MILB.com, and I'm so excited to have him here on the show. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on Stealing Home.
1: Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh,
0: So we're talking about about the site that you run, the blog that you run, on MLBlogs.com called Ben's Biz. And what that deals with is basically... Everything that has to do with minor league baseball, whether it's promotions or uh, jerseys or, or in-game activities, basically anything that happens on a minor league field, you're on top of it. How did you get in to covering stories like this?
1: Um, well, I guess like a lot of stories of this nature, it's kind of convoluted. Um, I wasn't hired specifically to do the job I do now, but to make a long story short, I 2005 is when MILB.com started, and uh, I was able to get a just a night shift, part-time job writing game recaps. And uh, I stuck around after that season ended, started working during the daytime, ended up writing a promo preview column highlighting the 10 most notable promotions going on in minor league baseball. And that started to get me really interested in the world of minor league baseball in regard to how the team operates and all the things they do in regard to getting people into the stands. And uh, so the blog came as an offshoot of writing that column, and that kind of solidified a reputation as being the go-to guy as regards promotions and game operations. And after I did that for a few years, I was able to finagle a little bit of a travel budget so I could actually see these places that I'm writing about and you know, kind of legitimize my so-called expertise. And it's just been kind of rolling from there. Um, never really had a game plan, just uh, trying to always grow and evolve and see what happens.
0: It's so interesting because I like as a writer, as a baseball writer, I work with people uh, who cover the minor leagues, but you know, s- specifically on the player side, you know they're covering prospects, right? They 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 go when they do travel, uh, you know, to Nashville or whatever. Uh, they're going to look at us at a certain pitcher who's pitching that day, or or maybe they'll you know go for three days and watch everybody hit. Uh, but when you go uh, on these travel trips, uh, you not only well, you cover the city, which I really like to, to you know, because a lot of these places I've never been to before. So it's nice to see you kind of go outside the stadium too. you get a little um, feel for the city. But then uh, you also, you know, go in, in, into the parks and not only, you know, you go up in the press box and you take pictures with the mascots and, and, and things like that. Uh, how did I mean, is this is, the, is this travel thing? The, your, the favorite part, your favorite part of this job?
1: Um, it's my favorite part in retrospect, when I get home and realize sure. all the cool things I did, <laughs> right. um, when it's happening, it's just trying to keep my head above water.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you're basically reporting on a vacation. I mean, that's kind of the weird part, right? You're taking a vacation, but then you also have a job that goes along with it.
1: Yeah. And, and when I do that, I often hear people say like, Hey, you know, live in the dream. And, um, it is, and I try to, um, advance that narrative, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like living the dream when I'm doing it because I'm trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B and who to talk to and what to write about and where to stop and the hour I free before I move on to the next place. And um, I think that goes through with any job I've learned is that anyone who's quote-unquote living the dream is not is working really, really hard to do so. Uh, at least in the moments when they are chasing that dream. But I really do enjoy it. I love America, and I love exploring America through baseball, and that's kind of become my kind of thesis statement is every team is a reflection of the community in which it operates, and therefore these 160 minor league teams is a reflection of America. So what better way to explore America than, than minor league baseball?
0: Now you've been covering this subject for a few years now, and I want I have a hypothesis that uh, these uh, promotions, especially, you know, the thing, the type of things you cover, uh, the promotions, these um, new, you know, special game nights where the play, you know, there's a theme and the players wear these, you know, special jerseys. Maybe it's because uh, more people are interested in this stuff now because of your work or maybe it's because, but I think it's actually, is, are these things taking over minor league baseball? It seems like every day there's, another team with a Star Wars jersey or, uh, you know, a jersey with a dog on it, and they all have these, you know, crazy bobbleheads or or theme nights. Am I crazy or is this happening more often?
1: It is. I think in terms of the really outlandish stuff, it's happening a little more often. Um, But I think a lot of it is just that the Internet makes it much easier to know about these things that are happening. Um, You think 10 years ago, if there's a crazy minor league promotion, you know, there was no MILB.com, there weren't the 160 affiliated team sites, Twitter wasn't around, um, I wasn't doing my job, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, so things kind of stayed more localized. Um, but now it's just easy to know what's going on with these 160 teams, and of course, the teams are aware of the internet as well, and I think that has led to an increase in the more uh, nationally-oriented pop culture promotions.
0: It almost seems like a, uh, like a bit of a one-upsmanship.
1: Oh, definitely. It's it's an it's an industry of one-upsmanship. Whether it's a theme jersey or just the attendance numbers, or, or a uh, you know the best hot dog or, um, the fastest the grounds crew can put the tarp on. You know these people they don't communicate or they don't uh, compete with one another, um, in terms of within they they all have their own markets. So they don't compete in that way. But there's one upmanship in that each team wants to be the best, and it's a it's a friendly thing. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of competition to see who think who can uh, do things best, and a lot of bragging rights.
0: And you also go behind the scenes a little bit, which I really like. Um, you know, you, you read a lot of stories about minor league players and how you know maybe they, um, you know, they they still love what they're doing, but you know there are some hardships that they have to kind of overcome uh, on the road or or even at home, really. Just you know, in, in minor league baseball in general. But the people who work for these minor league teams, uh, the people that you cover, is a whole other story. Um, you know, you'd think that kind of like what you were talking about earlier, working in baseball would be a dream job, right? Uh, you know, even for a minor league team, you know, who can think of a better job than that? But these people, not only do, they, I mean, are they under the gun, you know, to put, to put butts in the seats and, and to bring money and go into the teams, but I mean, they work long hours and, and, and late nights and a lot of, you know, physical activity. There's just not as many of them, uh, you know, they they really have a lot tougher than people think.
1: Without a doubt, um, but kind of with the same argument as with the players, you're there because you love it, and that doesn't necessarily excuse poor conditions and low pay. But that desire to be at the ballpark really motivates these people to do what they do. But no doubt, there's a very high attrition rate from a wide-eyed, super enthusiastic 22-year-old intern to someone who's 35 or 40 and saying, you know, how much longer can I do this on this salary and Maybe I'm married. Maybe I'm trying to raise a family. It's a tough industry to really uh, make your way in long term. People do do it and find a way, Um, but it is tough. Long hours, a 10-game homestand, 14-hour days every day, Um, not seeing your family, not seeing your friends, not having a normal semblance of a life, I think, wears on people without a doubt. But at the same time, most of the people I talk to love their jobs because they work in a ballpark every day and in the minors you don't see that differentiation of labor that you do in the majors where everything's compartmentalized you could be you know doing media relations for a minor league club but also pulling tarp and dressing up in the mascot suit and making a community appearance so it really gives you a a wide skill set and keeps you active and keeps you sharp and um i think there's a lot to envy and admire about it as well
0: it's stealing home i'm david temple i'm talking to ben hill Ben is a long entrenched reporter about all things minor league for both his Ben's Biz website at mlb.com as well as on milb.com. I'm sure you get asked this actually quite a lot, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, what are some of your favorite things and it doesn't have to be of all time, maybe in the in the past few years. What are some of the favorite I don't want to call them stunts, but we we'll, we'll say promotions or or you know, attention grabbers that that teams have put on? uh, that have really, you know, made you laugh or made you smile?
1: Yeah, I I get variations on this question all the time and inevitably fumble my way through it. I kind of need to make a little cheat sheet for myself because with 160 teams and 70 home dates each, and now in my 10th season of doing this in some way or another, it does kind of turn into a, into a blur, uh, very quickly. Um, one thing I personally like, I'm not sure how successful it is in terms of really getting people into the seats, is um, the teams who still hire the men or the kind of old vaudeville-style acts. Like um, there's a guy, Ted Bachelor who gets lit on fire and runs around the bases on fire and then slides into the bases while he's entirely on fire, and that's like a good prelude to a fireworks show. Um, or the human cannonball who gets you know, shot out of a cannon and over the fence. You know, the post-game stunt, I really respond to that. I kind of like that kind of daredevil freak show mentality. Um, A lot of teams are really good at just um, tapping into what's going on in pop culture or politics. And I'm not sure if that translates to anything at the gate, but it, it definitely gets them, you know, gets them attention when you can just something happens and bam. You know, you can jump on it and, and respond. And inevitably, again, with the Internet, you'll be all over the Internet if, uh, you know, a politician makes some sort of verbal gaffe and there's a, a promotion highlighting it, you know, within 10 hours. So um, there's a lot. it makes it fun in that regard. Like something happens and you say, uh-oh, you know,
0: I'm going to be the first one to, to to jump on this. But you're right about, you know, there's, there's a certain showmanship that goes along with it, right? Because if, you know, presidential elections coming up, let's say, um, you know, anybody can make a joke about that or, or base a promotion around that. But, um, you know, there, there's that old, you know, it, it, it kind of harkens back to not even just minor league teams, but major league teams not so long ago when, you know, they also had to struggle to put to put people in the seats. And so, you know, there were all these kind of, you know, uh, well, that's, you know, kind of how mascots came to be as well. And then, you know, there's this there's this showmanship, this kind of alternate performance that's going on at the baseball game whether it's someone on fire or you know um you know uh there could be a band in the stands you know some at some point uh, uh during the game it really kind of it really kind of harkens back to the to the older time of baseball.
1: Yeah, definitely and the minors keeps that alive. Um even just recently was the 35th 35th anniversary of uh Disco Demolition Night, you know, the White Sox staged that originally. A major league team wouldn't touch something like that today, but just last week the Charleston River Dogs, you know, did a 2014 version of that and blew up Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus records and that kind of thing. Uh, the major leagues, though, has gotten a lot more corporatized, uh, conservative, stayed. And uh, up there it's all about winning, and it should be. Um, but you don't see that uh, kind of goofy anything-goes atmosphere that you would see in the majors. Um, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Now that's kind of seen as tacky or minor league. (laughs) And it's the minor leagues that uh, say, yeah, we're the minors. We have to do this kind of thing. And uh, that also speaks to the fundamental disconnect in that if you work for a minor league team, you don't control the product on the field whatsoever. That's entirely run through the parent club. They pull all the strings regarding the players. So you can't promote a player. You can't work on putting together the best roster you can. You have no control over the product on the field. So, if you work in minor league baseball, you work in, in, in entertainment more than sports, and that also leads to that more anything-goes approach, and that's why you see so many different things going on.
0: Well, if anybody's looking uh, for that insight into that entertainment in, in, the, in the minor league systems, uh, your site is, is certainly the one to go to. Ben Hill, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me on Stealing Home.
1: Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Ben Hill is a writer at bensbiz.mlblogs.com, also at milb.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. There are quite a few movies about baseball. Some are bad, some okay, and some are quite excellent. But the thing about most of them is that they deal with big league ball. A couple deal with little league or backyard baseball, and almost none of them handle the theme of minor league baseball. I'm no expert on the subject, but I can think of basically two movies that deal with the minors. Bull Durham and Major League Three. And Brewster's Millions, sort of. But there should be more movies about minor league baseball. Sure, the majors carry a bigger payoff when the team beats the odds, but there's so much more to mine from the lower leagues. The personalities, the relationship with the town, the struggle of the has-beens or never wors Bull Durham does a very admirable job, but it certainly doesn't have to be the final say on the subject. Which is why I was glad to come across a new documentary on Netflix, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. It's the story of the short-lived Portland Mavericks, a member of the Northwest League in the mid-1970s. For a documentary, you couldn't ask for much more. It's got movie stars, ex-convicts, future convicts, redemptions, failures, and a whole host of deeply flawed and deeply entertaining subjects. But the main character is actually an idea that independent baseball was still a viable business. See, the Mavericks played against single A teams, but they were not a single AT themselves. The Mavericks would live up to their name, going alone, and not being affiliated with a major league team. This meant the team had total control over their players, operations, and finances. This also meant that they did not benefit from the two things most minor league teams most benefit from, money and players the team was the brainchild of actor Bing Russell.
2: I got a bigger thrill out of baseball than I ever did out of show business because when you hit that ball and hit it right, which I didn't do too many times, a thrill goes through your whole body. But trotting around the bases, it's sort of the same feeling you get when you come off stage after a scene that's gone particularly well. But uh, acting is a much more personal thing and baseball is a much more involved thing. you got 18 guys out here, 18 minds, and two round objects of batting a ball
0: and everything uh, it goes crazy. And of course, a lot of things went crazy in this wonderful ballpark right here. Bing was an actor. He did movies and was the sheriff on Bonanza. He's also the father to actor Kurt Russell. Bing had three things that allowed the Mavericks to come to fruition, money, a love for baseball, and a city with a recently departed minor league team. The money wasn't an issue, but fielding a roster was a different story. With a bar owner turned manager watching on, the Mavericks were forced to hold open tryouts. Men from all over the country came in to try their luck. This is Portland, Oregon, home of the Northwest Leagues Portland Mavericks, one of the last of the independent clubs.
2: Owned by an actor, Bing Russell, and managed by a restaurant owner named Frank Peters, the club's general manager is unique, too. Her name is Lanny Moss. How does an independent club get players? Well, they put an ad in the Sporting News announcing tryouts. First of all, we had to you know put ballplayers together. And Bing said, you never know what we're going to find. We're going to have open tryouts. You're going to get talent out of open tryouts? That's a little unbelievable. Everybody that had any talent was going to get drafted. To the, by a major league team to play in its farm system somewhere and hopefully elevate to the major leagues. It, it's considered laughable.
0: And they went straight for the laughs, which is just what Bing wanted. Let them have their field day. Let them chew us up. Let them just make, it, show us for the idiots
2: we are, the fools that we are coming from Hollywood. First thoughts, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you what they were. They're probably unprintable. <laughs> it was like, what is this all about? It was a joke.
0: Some who tried out had been drafted by teams some years back, but fell out due to injury or ineffectiveness. Some never got a look from a team at all, including their left-handed catcher. What are you looking for in these guys?
2: I'm looking for someone that can play for the Mavs and not necessarily a big leaguer. And uh, what we're looking for is the ball player that that organizations, for whatever reason, that they, uh, whatever they choose, do not think can play in the big leagues. These are the guys that... uh, wish they could, and haven't been able to. Out of college, I went straight home. I didn't get drafted. Can't believe they didn't want a left-handed catcher. It just can't, makes no sense to me. And my dad said, there's tryouts down in Portland for this Portland Mavericks. I go, what's that mean, Dad? He goes, to go try out for the team. So I went down there and tried out, and there was like 500 people there. And I went back there and caught, and I was throwing some people out, and their bank calls, you know, comes up to me, and goes, Did you know you're left-handed? I feel like I am the first and only left-handed catcher ever signed a professional contract.
0: So I think that my glove should be in the Hall of Fame. Not me, my glove. Nevertheless, the Mavericks found their roster and all the TV puff pieces and newspaper profiles that went along with such an endeavor. But here's the best part. This is not, as one would expect, a story of a plucky, independent team coming together against all adversity to learn about baseball and themselves, blah blah blah. To the contrary, the Mavericks were good. Like, really good. This, as it turns out, isn't a story about a group of men trying to prove their worth as players, but a team trying to prove its worth as an organization. Look, I love big league ball as much as anyone else. But it's easy to forget just how big of a hold it has on the game in general. As of right now, it still has its exemption from antitrust suits. And while the Players Union has made great strides to improve their interests, MLB still has final say on what teams go where. And this goes for minor league teams, too. And thus, when the Miners came courting Portland once again, the Mavericks were backed up against a wall. And so they did the only thing they knew how. They fought for relevance. For the Mavericks, the battle on the field was always secondary. Their biggest fight was over a notion. That a team didn't need big league backing to be successful. That it isn't always about money or stud prospects that sometimes all a team needs to succeed is a bunch of roaring fans. To the city of Portland, the Mavericks weren't never worse. They just hoped their real hometown team never left. The Mavericks boys and girls was a baseball team that I'm proud to say I played for. Our
2: motivation was simple, revenge. We loved whomping, Fuzzy-cheeked college bonus babies owned by the Dodgers or Phillies. Will there ever be a Mav Old-Timer's Day, you ask? Nah, too many players in the Witness Protection Program. Wherever you guys are, I love you, man. You battered bastards of baseball. When you run into Mavericks now, that's probably one of the real highlights of their lives, something that gave them another chance to actually do something that they had spent all their life trying to do, and they actually got to do it their way.
0: The Battered Bastards of Baseball is available to stream on Netflix. It does feature some salty language. so be careful around sensitive ears. Everything I know about the state of Alaska basically comes from catching snippets of TV shows about gold miners or people who drive semi-trucks over frozen lakes. Alaska has a lot of legends tied to it, the expansive mountains, how one can travel dozens of miles before coming across their nearest neighbor, the wildlife, the cruel winters, the northern lights. Alaska has a lot of things associated with it. One of them would not, at least for me, be baseball. According to Baseball Reference, only 11 players that saw Major League Time were born in Alaska, Curt Schilling being the most notable. There isn't a deep tradition of baseball there. Heck, it wasn't even named a state until a year after the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, and 56 years after the Yankees were founded. And yet, our 49th state isn't without its own baseball tradition, as short-lived as it is. Due to the presence of a seasonal semi-pro league, there is actually live baseball to be seen in Alaska. The Alaska Baseball League features six teams— and a chance for college players to hone their skills in the summer. And one of those teams has been keeping a time honored tradition going for more than 50 years. The Alaska Gold Panners of Fairbanks claim to have seen 197 future big leaguers come through their ranks. All stars like Rick Monday and Barry Bonds, Hall of Famers like Tom Seaver and Dave Winfield. As well as current MLB players like Brendan Ryan and Chris Medlin have all come through the ranks of the gold panners. At the risk of sounding foolish, I must admit I had never heard of this league before. I've known about some college summer leagues, but never knew nor never would imagine one existed in a place as remote as Alaska. So I called my friend Henry Cole. He's been an Alaska native for about 25 years. And he has a good deal of first-hand knowledge when it comes to the gold panners. Henry, thank you for joining me on Stealing Home.
2: Yes, thanks for having me, David.
0: Now, to the listener, if my voice sounds a little weird, a little lower than usual, it's because it's a little late at night for me. It's about 9.30 p.m., but that's because I'm talking to Henry, who lives in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is actually three hours different from me in Minnesota. So it's only you know a little later in the afternoon for him. Uh, Henry, we're here to talk about the uh, Alaska Baseball League, specifically the Alaska Gold Panners of Fairbanks. Uh, the Alaska Baseball League is, is from what I understand, uh, uh, on, on the lines of maybe the Northwoods League or, or around my area or the Cape Cod League out on the East Coast. It's actually a collegiate level uh you know amateur baseball league is that right
2: yeah it is um i'm not uh i'm not familiar with the northwoods league but uh the cape cod league is one that the the abl is frequently compared to um it's uh primarily uh, excuse me primarily college players um although it's it's semi-pro there are um there are always a few on, on each team there's a few local local kids um, and uh, there have been, in the past, there have been even a few former major leaguers <clears throat> uh, returning to play, and um, when those guys show up, it's always kind of one of the highlights, but primarily college players, yes.
0: And, and you watch uh, a lot of professional baseball um, as a fan and as a writer, um, so you have a pretty good idea of what you know major league level uh, play is like. How would yeah. you compare that to uh, a league like the Alaska Baseball League?
2: i think uh i think a good way to describe the alaska baseball league is that they would um um basically the teams because they're they're primarily college players they're basically division one all star teams um they're they're that caliber and um i i would say that uh that they could clean up against probably high a minor league teams um and maybe win a few games against uh you know double a teams a few out of a out of out of many um so yeah, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that they're, you know, A to high A um level more or less anyway.
0: And they're not they can't be all local kids obviously. Uh where where do these players come from? Is it is it kind of a, an all-over deal or are they mostly kind of west coast kids?
2: They're mostly west coast kids. Um I think I think last year the year before we had a kid from uh, uh from Alabama or Georgia or something like that, but uh they're mostly west coast kids. Um University of Arizona, UCLA, um Cal uh, berkeley um schools like that um and the managers um and this isn't just for the gold panners this is all six teams in the a b l uh the managers are are frequently uh either college managers or college coaches um and so they 'll bring up a lot of players from their team and uh you know surrounding teams um and uh, as far as the local kids go there are i think this year there were only two um on the on the panners roster um one of whom, incidentally, was uh, Scooter Bynum, who was uh, uh, probably the best homegrown baseball player Alaska has seen in some time. He uh, he was drafted in the eighteenth round by Cincinnati, I believe, but opted not to sign.
0: That's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, no offense against your home state or or your current home state for for what almost twenty five years now, uh, but it doesn't seem like a, a typical hotbed uh, for baseball. Which is it, which struck me as as a little different. You know, the fact that not only did they have a team, but a whole league uh, of baseball players there. Is it something that, you know, uh, is it something that the that the local people come out to in, in pretty good numbers? Is it pretty popular there in the summer?
2: Um, unfortunately, no, uh, and that's, that's a, a bone of contention between uh, myself and the, the management of the team. Um, so uh, just get, let me give you a bit of background. There's six teams in the ABL. Um, the gold panners here in fairbanks uh there are two teams in anchorage um which is obviously you know the the, the major population center in the state um there's a team in palmer which is just uh, about an hour drive north of anchorage uh there's a team in chugach which is basically a suburb of anchorage and there's a team in kenai which is about an hour and a half south of anchorage so everything is clustered um down in south central part of the state those teams do better Um, especially the anchorage teams the ones in the city itself the gold panners um, by way of comparison do very poorly uh, in terms of attendance Um, average attendance on a normal normal night is probably around 250 Um, the park seats 3,500 to 4,000 people um, and it generally fills up twice a year Um, uh one of those nights is of course the Midnight Sun Game, which I imagine we'll get to in a little bit. Um, uh, and then the other one is uh this is gonna sound so redneck, but the other one is NRA night. Um for the last couple of years they've raffled off guns and uh that, that brings quite the draw.
0: Uh oh, that huh? that's so Alaska. That just uh <laughs> that makes me smile. And and not in a condescending way. Uh no, that's just that's just really perfect. Uh you mentioned the Midnight Sun game, so let's let's talk about that. Okay. Uh Alaska has a uh because of its uh well I guess its latitude uh in the summer has a uh, a certain stretch where really it stays I mean it it's a little bit of a misnomer but it stays uh light out for a very long time. And so a tradition uh and correct me if I'm wrong but a tradition in Fairbanks uh for the gold panners is to actually start a game of baseball at midnight.
2: Um very close. Um the game uh, the game actually begins at 10:30 p.m. Um, But, obviously, if you start a baseball game at 10.30, you're going to be playing at midnight. Um, The Midnight Sun game is a very uh, long-time tradition here. It's much older than even the Gold Banners, um, who have been in existence since 1960. Uh, But the Midnight Sun game has been played since 1906 or 1907, something like that, um, without interruption every single year. Uh, At first, it was by... Um, essentially club teams so if you look at the uh if you look at the the early scores you know you'll see that radio station beat lumber mill or something like that um which are always very amusing and then um in the 40s and 50s the uh, you know there were there were local leagues mostly men's leagues um it started to become a bit more stable uh and then with the panners starting in 1960 um they began to uh they began to draw attention or uh, opponents from from outside uh, to come up as an exhibition um and they've had some fairly notable ones the uh i think the the biggest name that that showed up is the taiwanese national team which came here i believe twice um and uh they ended up forfeiting the game because the taiwanese manager insisted that the lights be turned on um and i guess that's part of the tradition is that not only is this game played at late they don't turn the lights on. Um, of course, the the joke now is that the lights don't work, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they are still there. They look like they they work.
0: How how dark does it get? I mean, you know, let's say you know, a baseball game takes you know, even a, a semi pro game will take you know, good two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're definitely hitting the stroke of midnight. I mean, what, what what's it like out there? Is it can you still see the ball i mean are our hitters in danger our fielders in danger or is it still you know light enough where where a game can be played
2: well it really that really depends on the weather um if it's a clear a clear day which we actually haven't had much of this year we've broken been breaking rainfall records left and right but on a clear uh, clear night um you know it it's not going to matter um uh, in Fairbanks, even even at the, that time of year, right around June 21st, the sun does go down. It sets at about uh, one 12:30 uh, to 1 a.m., something like that, and it comes up about 20 minutes later. But there's that during that period where it's darkest. Um, there's still enough civil twilight that you can do things like drive a car, or you could read a book outside. Um, but if it's cloudy or overcast, um, it can get fairly dark. And, uh, there have been a couple of times when, um, even this year, uh, not at the midnight sun game, just normal games, um, which started at seven generally, even this year, there were a couple of times when, um, when f- fielders obviously were unable to make a play. Um, and, uh, there was one when the, uh, the pitcher delivered his pitch and no one saw it. The, the batter didn't react. The catcher missed it. The umpire didn't get out of the way, uh, because clearly no one saw the ball, um, so it, uh, there, you know, that, and that happens in the later innings, um, so it's not the whole game is like that, but, um, during the Midnight Sun game, especially if it gets to be a long game, if it goes into extra innings or what have you, um, it, it can get, it can get dark enough that, um, that under normal circumstances it would be called, um, but the Midnight Sun game, to my knowledge, has never been called on account of
0: darkness. It's Stealing Home. I'm David Temple, and my guest is Henry Cole. He's been an Alaska native for almost a quarter century now, and we're talking about the strange and unique tradition of the Alaska Baseball League and the Alaska Gold Panners of Fairbanks. Well, I want to I want to get back to to the Gold Panners a little bit. Um, okay. Uh, minor league teams, semi-pro teams, however you want to classify them. Um, Like you mentioned, maybe Fairbanks has a little bit of a problem drawing in fans, though. Maybe some of the other teams in the Alaska Baseball League have have less of a problem. But there's still always the idea of, you know, they don't get any help from Major League Baseball. Uh, They don't usually, um, especially, you know, the smaller, more independent teams don't really get a whole lot of help from, you know, uh, city, municipal, county, state kind of funding. Uh, for for infrastructure stadiums things like that uh so a lot of the money has to come from from ticket sales. Are there any other besides besides the midnight sun game are there any other um kind of promotions weird wacky things that you can recall from the Alaska baseball League to help you know drum up interest and bring people into the stadium
2: well, sure i mean as i mentioned before we have we've had n r a night the last few years um and uh they also um just running down the list there's um uh there's union night um and I believe union night it might have changed, but it used to be that anyone with a union card got in for free um admission is only i believe it's only five dollars for regular games um twenty or twenty five for the midnight sun game, but um there's bank night where they had free tickets at a lot of local banks um that if you came in to make a deposit or whatever, they could. They would give you a ticket. Um, one they didn't do, they haven't done for a couple of years. There was a ladies' night, and obviously women got in free then. And, um, I'm not sure if they stopped that because it wasn't working or because people complained. But um, Then there have been various uh, kids' nights, um, and uh, usually that's focused on uh, um, either little league baseball or, or girls' softball players. Um, I believe it's you have to be wearing a hat. If you're wearing a team hat, at least you can come in. Um, and so there's always on those days there's always you know, like whole leagues of of you know little children um, there, and a fairly large percentage of them have no interest in the game. They they're there to collect foul balls because um, the stadium is uh, uh, is is large and sparsely crowded enough that if a foul ball gets into the stands, there's Chances are there's not going to be anyone right there. So you, you see the mob of kids running after balls.
0: Well, it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you said that the the stadium in Fairbanks doesn't have lights, or they have lights, but they don't work, right? Um, it seems to me that, like, when I go to an... Uh, I mean, some of my best memories are from night games because, well, one, that's just, statistically, you know, percentage-wise, it's the most games I go to. Right. But, I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain field to a night game when uh when when the the atmosphere and I'm not saying like, you know, fan atmosphere, but like the actual the actual temperature and, and the humidity and everything outside is just kind of like at this perfect level. And I imagine Alaska, you know, doesn't get necessarily too warm in the summertime, so there have to be some some really you know, some really nice nights that you get to sit and and watch at least somewhat competitive baseball you know under kind of a uh, uh at least from an outsider's perspective a kind of eerie night sky
2: yeah there there uh there are i mean the the lights haven't always been been broken um the the story is that a um the transformer that connected the lights because there's some insane high voltage the story that connected them to the mains exploded um one night during a game in fact um there was a lightning strike presumably somewhere on the line and and um both the team and the electric company and the uh the borough the local municipal government who own the land under the stadium all three have kind of disclaimed responsibility for this and um no one's ponied up the money to to repair it so uh, for about a decade now that's been the case um and so and so
0: i mean i'm I'm sorry to interrupt but uh so basically I mean, you know, uh discarding the the midnight sun game. When do, when do games start? I mean, is it still light enough outside for these kind of, you know, normal regular um, you know, scheduled games?
2: Well, the season is fairly short. Um, but they uh, uh I believe this year it started the second week of June. Um and they actually start outside um before the uh before the end of the college world series. So, um couple weeks before that so and maybe getting my dates messed up but um and so the team will sort of grow as it's as their players or as the the players normal teams are eliminated and and come back home so to speak um and then by about the by about the second week of june after having played several games um against other semi-pro and amateur teams they'll they'll come come home and start the abl season um and they're done by, uh, boy, when did they finish this year? They're done by the middle of July, um, oh, the wow. end of July.
0: So it is very um, short then.
2: It's very short. Um, and the reason they're done that early is because uh, the team is a, is a perennial contender in the National Baseball Congress, um, which is actually ongoing right now. And so they have to, uh, they have to get to Wichita for that by I believe it started a, a week or week couple of weeks ago. Um so uh that that kind of puts a uh, you know the the little or the not little world series, the college world series and the NBC world series, those kind of are the bookmarks of the season. Um there probably are ways that they could work around it and host more games, but um uh, understandably that would be that would be difficult. But within that time frame, um for a 7 a 7 p.m. start time it would have to be some really unseasonable weather for you to need lights um and of course if you have that kind of weather your lights are probably not going to be something you're you're worrying about um so the the atmosphere um the vast majority of games the 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 climate or whatever as you were alluding to is pretty much the same as a day game anywhere else um when it starts, it's bright enough, it's warm enough. Of course, the sun is low in the sky because it's in the evening. But um, it's it's bright enough and warm enough, certainly, that it, it, you know, it's not hot, but, you know, our our average summer temperatures or highs are probably in the upper 70s. Um,
0: so this seems like prime baseball watching weather to me.
2: Oh, it's perfect.
0: It's oh, perfect. It sounds um, great.
2: But I, I have to agree with you, though, David. There is a certain... Just, I don't know, eerie awesomeness. To that's a weird way of putting it. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I think it's a great way to put it. If you ask me, it's an eerie awesomeness. we will roll with it. To uh, <laughs> to to night baseball, but um, under the lights and everything. But um, it's I I, I it's like I might have uh, I might have remarked on this to you in in uh, in Houston last week, um, when we were there for for Saber. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's that's always weird weird to me about traveling in the summer is the the experience of it being dark and warm at the same time because that that virtually never happens here when it's when it's warm it doesn't get that dark when it's dark like that it of course is not warm um so I have been to some games like that minor league games outside and they you're right they're great but that's that's just something you won't get here
0: well, it sounds just uh, terribly interesting, and I think, nay, I know that I have officially written down, or I will officially write down, the Midnight Sun game as a—I uh, hate this term—but a bucket list thing for me. Something I'm <laughs> definitely going to come out there uh, and see. And Henry, I want to thank you so much for for coming on and 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 talking to me. It's been great uh, discussing this 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 whole uh, separate world uh, that you have going on as far as Alaska baseball goes.
2: Yeah, absolutely, David. It's uh, my pleasure.
0: Henry Cole is a writer for TheGoodFight.com. He's a Phillies fan and he lives in Alaska. You can find that at TheGoodFight.com, fight with a PH, of course. And you can follow him on Twitter at P H R O Z E N underscore. Henry, thanks again. Thank you, David. end every show, I like to highlight someone who, for reasons on the field or off, deserve a little love. It's the MVP of my heart. Baseball on the radio can be a tough sell. It's a slow game with a lot of downtime. Attempting to be presented in a non-visual medium, because of the nature of the game, and because there aren't a whole lot of ways to narrate men just kind of standing around, radio producers and hosts find other ways to fill time. There are ads, sure. There are certainly plenty of banter and remember-when stories about the good old days. These, for the most part, are mostly fine and mostly necessary. But there are two things that really bug me. The first is the giveaways. I get that radio stations don't have truckloads of cash to throw around these days, but if Betty's name gets drawn on the day the Brewers happen to score four runs or more in an inning, Isn't she entitled to a little more than a case of sausages? It seems like faux charity. Like they are trying to trick you into thinking they're doing a great service. The other thing that bothers me is the fan questions. The questions and the answers are never interesting. The producers pick the biggest meatballs and the radio guys give the same canned responses, just in a slightly different order. It's boring. It doesn't add to the game. It's unnecessary. Imagine my surprise, then, when I came across a broadcast from June twenty third, 2014. It features Red's broadcaster, Marty Brenneman.
2: All right, folks, it is Ask Marty time. Yeah, yeah. This is where we ask the Hall of Famer to give his thoughts on any and every subject, baseball or non-baseball, always presented by CBTS. Tonight's question comes from the Twitter handle, laymanjohn7. Laymanjohn7, bring Layman it, Layman John wants to know, Marty. Yeah,
1: laymanjohn7. What is your biggest fear in life?
0: Okay, you know what? Maybe I should listen to more Reds broadcasts, because this is a question. I give credit to both the producer for picking it and Marty for answering Surely Brenneman could have come up with some drivel about the Reds never winning another championship or that baseball was going to be ruined by replays and stat heads and game lengths. But he doesn't. He answers very earnestly. Almost disturbingly so.
1: What is your biggest fear in life? You know what, that's a serious question. That's one that uh, I would not make light of. Because I think when you reach a certain age in life, maybe there are things that uh, concern you a bit more than maybe they did when you were younger. One of the big fears I have is dying in a hotel room by myself.
0: I'm going to stop here for a second. A prominent local celebrity was just publicly asked a question by an anonymous Twitter user about his greatest fear. And said local celebrity answered
1: dying in a hotel room by myself that's really? about as honest as i can be and i and the reason i say that is the pitch is strike one on a check swing that didn't check in time by Rugiano. two guys in our profession don drysdale in montreal and uh richie ashburn in new york city and i don't think that's the way i want to go
0: This is so incredibly jarring because it breaks from how our society teaches us to answer questions when we are asked about ourselves. How are you? Fine. How's your family? Good. How was work today? Okay. What do you want to eat? And also, what subject makes you most vulnerable as a human? Nobody asks that, and certainly nobody answers. And for being honest, for not making the easy joke, for bearing just a little bit of his soul, while also taking a moment to tell us about a check swing by Justin Ruggiano, Marty Brenneman is the MVP of my heart. Stealing Home is written, produced, scored, and hosted by me, David Temple, and distributed by the Hardball Times. A big thanks to Ben Hill and Henry Cole. For links to past shows, as well as some of the most intelligent and thoughtful baseball writing around today, please visit thehardballtimes.com. You can like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash stealinghomeradio, and if you haven't left a review on iTunes yet, please do. It helps us get noticed out there in podcast land. You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Temple, which is convenient since I am in fact David Temple. And we'll see you next time on Stealing Home.